Second Kings chapter number six. And let me say thank you to all those that labored and uh, made yesterday possible. Had a wonderful time in the Lord. And, uh, you know, no event that is that high stakes is going to be without some degree of controversy. So uh, don't get discouraged. It's just the way that it is. I mean, when, when national titles are on the line, it matters, you know, uh, people's careers and everything else. So Second Kings chapter number six, and uh, you pray for me this morning. I'm a little bit under the weather. If I if I did not shake your hand, I wasn't trying to be rude, uh, but I just don't don't want to share. Christians ought to share a lot of things, amen. But uh, germs are not one of them. Uh, now, if I did shake your hand. It's because I know that you know how to pray and get a hold of God. And we're in this together now, all right? So we need to be praying for healing. And I probably won't stand at the back door today uh, after the service and shake hands. Uh, you know, it, it's whatever it is, it ain't, it ain't contagious. Uh, I don't really know that, but it makes me feel better to say that. A lot of that, it's just living in Tennessee. You know, when the children of Israel, God led them into the promised land, uh, it didn't come without battles. They had giants they had to fight. And uh, in Tennessee, we're in God's country. We got pollen. Amen. So you pray for one another. Second Kings chapter number six. I want to read two verses in this chapter. And then I want to jump over to chapter seven and read a little bit more of the word of God. This will help frame some of what's happening in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of ten tribes at this time in their history. Verse 24, the Bible says, and it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. It is to the northern kingdom what Jerusalem was to the southern kingdom. It is their capital, and Ben-Hadad besieged Samaria. And the Bible says there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head sold for fourscore pieces of silver. I don't know current inflation rates, what they cost now, amen, but that was a lot of money back then. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Now turn over to chapter 7 with me. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel. Shekel's not very much money. He says, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. So they're right smack dab in the middle of an inflation crisis, amen, because of this famine. And Elisha says that tomorrow it's all going to be different. You're going to be able to buy a measure of fine flour for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Elisha said to him, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. They said one to another, Why sit we here till we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come and let us fall under the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight 
to go unto the camp of the Syrians. When they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a great noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Then they said one to another, we do not well. This is a day, this day is a day of good tidings. We hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called unto the porter of the city. And they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. Now look down, verses 16, 17. We'll be done with our reading. It says, And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate, and the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died as the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God, Lord. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's sufficient this morning. I pray that you'd take it. And that your Holy Spirit would wield it deftly as, as your sword, Lord, to pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That you'd convict us, that you'd change us according to your will and for your glory. Lord, speak to every heart today. I don't know anybody's heart's condition, but you know them all. And I pray that you take the word of God and apply it in exactly the way that it needs to be heard to our hearts and to our ears. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done and will do. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've read this morning, this is a dire time of crisis for the northern kingdom of Israel. They're in the midst of this crushing famine, so much so that the Bible says uh, that they'd pay 80 pieces of silver for a donkey's head. I, I don't know. I, I suppose they would boil it down, make some sort of soup. And the Bible says the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung would be bought for five pieces of silver. A cab was a measurement uh, roughly equivalent to uh, 24 eggshells full. And so only a fourth of that, only six eggshells full of dove's dung. You say, preacher, what was they going to do with dove's dung? I don't know, but they must need it bad to pay five pieces of silver for it. Amen. Uh, maybe they were going to burn it for fuel. Maybe they were going to sift through it for seed to try to plant crops. Maybe, as crass and disturbing as it might be, they might have consumed it as some bit of nourishment that they could have. Things are so dire, and we didn't read this portion. I encourage you to in your own time, uh, that there is a, a conflict between two women in the city because they had agreed to eat the corpses of their children. And one had tricked the other one into giving her child's corpse to eat before the other other one did how how uh, how devastating was this situation that they found themselves in and in the midst of all of this the man of God Elisha 
is brought to the city of Samaria. He sends word and he tells them that though everything right now looks desperate, looks hopeless, looks bleak, looks dire, that in fact, by this time the next day, uh, there would be a, a bonanza of fine flour and of barley. That the entire economic circumstances of the city would be transformed. In fact, you could say uh, that Elisha said it'll be as different as night is from day, the difference from today and tomorrow. We've read the supernatural means through which God accomplished this, how that he let the uh, uh, Syrians hear a noise of chariots, a noise of great horses, and they fled for their life. And I think probably the bones of the narrative here are familiar to you, even if this is only the first time that you've read it. But I want us to notice more particularly this morning these four men that the Bible describes as lepers that are sitting outside of the gate of the city. You know, there was a phrase. I don't know if it struck you whenever we read it, but it's found in verse 9. These lepers, when they happen upon and discover this empty camp, uh, one of them looks at the other one and, and he says this in verse 9. We do not well. And then he makes this statement. He says, this day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. You know, in the New Testament, we are uh, given this word all throughout it. It's the word gospel to describe the reality and the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you know that actually the word gospel, it literally means good tidings. And I don't know about you, you know, uh, but but I'm convinced the Holy Ghost read every uh, wrote every word of this book. And I don't think it was by accident that the Holy Ghost recorded so carefully the words of this leper. I think in some ways there is a similarity between their situation in the day they were living in and our situation today as born-again believers that know God in His grace and in His mercy. There's a phrase that, One of the men says in verse number three, it says there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate and they said one to another. And I want you to notice this phrase. Why sit we here until we die? These men had come to terms with their mortality and they had made their mind up. They would sooner die with some hope in their hearts than die with despair in the gate of that city. And they approach unto this camp and they find that God has won a victory already for them that they didn't even know that God had won. And this transforms their life. And this statement or this spirit or this thought in verse 3, why sit we here until we die, becomes the rallying cry for their life. It informs not only their approach unto the Syrian camp, but when they go on and say we do not well, this day is a day of good tidings, what they're saying is we're doing exactly now that our lives have been saved what we were doing when we were dying. We're just sitting here like a bump on a log. We're inactive. We're not taking this glorious and grand truth and telling those who so desperately need to hear it. So in a lot of ways it reminds me of the situation that you and I are in as saved individuals, stewards, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Why sit we here till we die? Now, before you get excited, that don't mean I'm going to preach a short sermon. Amen. But rather in a spiritual sense, why would we allow lethargy to displace our calling? Why would we allow ourselves to merely run out the clock and waste this precious life? 
that God's given us. Notice with me before we begin the preaching three truths about these men because I want you to see yourself in these men. Notice number one, their dire condition. The Bible tells us this, there were four leprous men. We don't know their names. We don't know their ages. I think probably their nationality could maybe be assumed, but we don't really know. We don't know their preferences. We don't know their personalities. Because, you see, there was one prevailing characteristic about these men that negated anything else of value or worth in their life. And that's that these men were lepers. Whatever else they were, whatever much they were, they were lepers before they were anything else. Do you know in the Bible that leprosy over and over and over again is likened unto the malady of sin in the life of the believer? You and I, we are, uh, in our natural condition, we are sin sick. We, We don't become sinners, we are born sinners. You become saved when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've not always been saved. Nobody's always been saved. You may not remember the the date. You may not remember the time. You may not remember many details about it. But none of us have always been saved. Uh, there had to be a moment in time where we recognized, acknowledged, confessed ourselves a sinner and called on Jesus Christ for salvation. If we've never done that, we have no reason to believe that we are saved. Because we are born in a lost, sin-sick condition. Condition. And we are as doomed as these men were. Sooner or later, no matter what else they did in their life, this disease would lay claim to them. And listen, the sinner, whatever good he may do, whatever noble things, whatever virtuous things he may be able to muster up and work up, it don't change the fact that that sin problem don't go away unless it's dealt with. And it can only be dealt with by the grace of God. I see their dire condition. But then they're not just lepers. I mean, boy, you talk about, and I don't believe in luck, but just, just, just for, uh, you know, uh, conversation's sake here, you talk about bad luck, misfortune, you talk about the wrong place at the wrong time. Notice their doomed position. They're sitting at the gate of the city. That is literally the worst possible place that they could be. They're not in the city. They're not outside the city. They're sitting here, <coughs> excuse me, in between two enemy opposing forces. We could literally say this. They're caught in the middle of a war that is waging around them. You know, this perfectly describes the position of the lost sinner whose heart God is dealing with. They're caught in the middle of a war that's being waged all around them. The devil seeks to draw all men into hell with him. Hell wasn't made for mankind. It was made for the devil and his angels. But he'll drag everyone to hell that he possibly can. And then on the opposing side, you have the immaculate, beautiful, precious grace of God. God extending His hand to lost mankind. He said in the book of Proverbs all the day long, Have I stretched out my hand to you? God trying to save and rescue sinners by His grace and by His mercy. And these men likewise are caught in between these two opposing forces. They have a choice that they must make. Inactivity is not enough. That's what the man means when he says, why sit we here until we die? Because I'm going to tell you the truth. Every one of us is going to die someday. Lest the rapture takes those that have believed on the Lord out first. We are all going to face this reality. They, they said this, we'd die if we go in the city. We'd die if we go under the camp. We'll die if we sit right here. Sounds like they understood they was going to have to reckon with death. I like what they say, and I think that Christians could take a good cue from this when they talk about the risk of peril to their life. They say we could go unto the Syrians, they might kill us. And I love the way they say it, we shall but die. 
You know, when you got born again, death became just we shall but die and nothing else. If the worst thing that this world can do to you is kill you, it can't do very much to you. And they make this decision. They say, we can't stay here. We're going to have to make a decision. You know, the truth of the matter is this, the lost person, they're caught in between these two worlds, these two forces, these two choices, and they must make a decision one way or the other. You say, preacher, I just put it off. I just won't make a decision. Then you're making a decision. Then you're making a decision. I see their dire condition. I see their doomed position. But then I see their desperate decision. They said one to another, verse 3, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we shall enter into the city, then the famine is in the city. We shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. I like what they did here. I don't think they went to the Syrians because they thought that they were kind, compassionate people. I don't think they were going down to the local Syrian NGO office to get help. I think that when they went to the Syrians, they weren't trusting in the mercy of the Syrians. They were trusting in the mercy of the Lord. I I think that what they were saying is, we know they can't feed us in the city, but maybe the mercy of God can keep us alive if we go under the camp of the Syrians. And I like this, man. They recognize where they is really at. You know, when I got born again, I got born again because I recognized where I was really at. I've told you this before, but I was raised in a Bible-believing church. I was probably told the gospel multiple times on a weekly basis. But when I was 10 years old, the Holy Ghost of God made it real in my heart. Showed me that I really was lost. That this place, hell, wasn't just a fairy tale. that was told to scare children that, that, that this thing of salvation uh, wasn't just some kind of, uh, of carrot on the end of a stick to try to get little boys and girls to behave right, but that these things were real and that I was lost and that I was dying in my sin and that if I didn't come to Christ, I would die and go to hell. Once I realized how lost I was, it didn't take much for me to come to Jesus and let Him save me. And these men, they realized how hopeless they are. And they said, you know, it'd be better off that we just trust in the mercy of God. Like David of old, when faced with three forms of punishment, uh, that he could either allow the famine to devour his people, or he could allow the sword of men to devour his people, or he could allow the angel of judgment to pass through the nation of Israel, destroying people. He says, I'll take the angel of judgment. Maybe God is a merciful God that I can trust. He says, I'd rather trust in the mercy of God than trust in the mercy of man. I don't think there's trust in the mercy of man. I think they were trusted in the mercy of God. And they came to these Syrians because they said it could be God will deliver us in all of this. When I got saved, I was trusting in the mercy of God. And notice three things this morning that these men found when they came upon this camp. They certainly did not expect to find what they found. And can I just be frank with you this morning? I don't know that I expected to find what I found when I found Jesus. I mean, I knew some things. I knew he'd save me. I knew he'd forgive me. I knew he'd pardon me. But I could have never imagined all I'd find when I found him. Notice with me, number one this morning, the mercy that they found. These men, they go, verse 5, they rose up in the twilight, (coughs) excuse me, to go unto the camp of the Syrians. When they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, I like this, behold, there was no man there. 
You know what they found? They were fearful of this foe. They were worried about the Syrians. The Syrians were a bloodthirsty people with a bitter ages-long generational feud with the kingdom of Israel. When you read the history of, of the northern kingdom, what you really find it to be is a chronicle of the wars that they had mostly between themselves and the Syrians and these leprous men who could have been killed on sight for entering unclean people or entering a clean society in the first place. They go there and They have no reason to think that they're going to be met with anything except an arrow through the heart a hundred yards from camp. But when they get there, you know what they found? They found that the foe had already been vanquished. You You know the beautiful truth of the gospel? We get to take to a lost and dying sinner is that the foe has already been vanquished. Uh, Part of the problem, and I got a lot of problem with work salvation, mainly, uh, how rebellious I am. Amen. Uh, it's completely disconsonant with the truth of God. That the idea that we could work our way to heaven, God explicitly says it, that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And I mean, I don't know how the Holy Ghost can make it clear. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And the notion that some people have that what God is saying is come saddle up beside me, put your sword and your shield on, and let's go conquer the enemy together, and then you'll get to heaven, is completely wrong-headed and completely unscriptural. You know, the truth of the matter is, God's not trying to enlist and recruit you to whoop the devil. He's already whooped the devil. He's already defeated the foe. The Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, he was incarnated. He walked in flesh. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now think about these leprous men. They're sitting in the gate of the city like prisoners for all practical intents and purposes. They're scared to go in the city. The famine and no doubt disease followed was in there. They're scared to go to the Syrians. They think they're probably going to kill them. But whenever they go to the Syrian camp, they find this out. The Lord had already defeated the enemy and they don't have to but die. They can now live as a result of it. When I came to Jesus Christ, what I found is He didn't need my help with salvation. He didn't need my help whooping the devil. He had already done all of it Himself. I showed up and the battlefield had been vacated. The enemy had already been defeated. The price had already been paid. Salvation was there for the taking. He found this, that the foe was vanquished. Then look at verse 6. I don't know how they found this out. I don't know how they learned this, but the Holy Ghost tells us that the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight, left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. You know what they found when they got to the camp? They found the foe was vanquished, but number two, they found the Lord had been victorious. It's interesting. I'm not going to try to pry into all the machinations of how God does what He does and works what He works. But if God spoke this noise into the ears of these men, it tells me this, the power of God's Word had the ability to make the enemy flee. He could turn the tide of battle without ever having to lift a sword. That's how mighty, you know, the Bible in the book of Psalms calls the Lord a man of war. 
And he is a man of war. He is victorious. He has conquered the foe. And that tells me that victory lies with him. If I want to be on the winning side, I've got to be on his side. It's not a matter of me trying to defeat the enemy myself. Where's the victory found? Paul said this about our our final enemy, which is death. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, he said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? He said the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. How does he do that? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they got there and they found out the Lord had done for them what they could not do for themselves. What a picture that is of the saving grace of God in our life. Say, preacher, what did the Lord do for you? Well, he did everything for me. And what he did for me, he did that which I could not do myself. Salvation is coming to God and not saying, Now, Lord, I'll lend you a hand if you think I'm worth recruiting. Rather, it's coming to God and saying, There's nothing redeemable about me, but in your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness, you have redeemed me. And I'm putting my faith in you. You paid the price of my blood-stained soul. And I'm committing myself unto your care and believing on you. I see the mercy that they found. And I like this. Look at verse 8. I don't know why. Sometimes the Bible makes me laugh. Something about this makes me laugh. I see these old poor boys. They probably look pitiful. Probably looked only half again as good as I do today. And they, uh, I mean, they got, you know, they're missing fingers. They got a nose falling off. They got an eye popped out. And they get there. The Bible says when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent. I guess they found some cornbread there. It says they did eat and drink. They found a little pocket money. It says they carried thin silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. What did they do? They came again and entered into another tent and carried thins also and went and hid it. Now, there's two things I want you to notice here. Number one, notice the fact that when they went to the second tent, they didn't eat. And you know why they didn't eat? Because they had ate all they could eat at the first tent. Let me also point this out. Can I remind you the context here? This is in the middle of a famine. Not only is it in the middle of a famine, but these boys are lepers. They're beggars. They probably were starving before a famine ever happened in the first place. And when they get to the camp, they walk into a tent. They find that the table is spread. They find their silver and gold and raiment laying around. And they just go to town, man. I noticed the bounty that they found. This is what I meant a moment ago when I said, I don't know that when I came to Christ and found him that I knew what all I'd found. I don't know that when I got saved that I really realized all that I was getting when I got Jesus Christ. Notice two things about this. Notice that what they found, number one, fully satisfied them. They ate till they was about to pop. In fact, they was like most of us ate till they was about to pop and then just a couple more bites. <coughs> they had went in there starving and they came out full. They went in thirsty and they came out slated. And satisfied. Boy, man, that's what God did for me when He saved me. I came to Him and I was hungry. I came to Him and I was thirsty. I came to Him and I needed something in my soul. And when I got up from His table, I was fully satisfied. Christ made this promise in John chapter number 6, verse 35. He said unto that crowd that had got there for the feast day, He looked at him. He said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. It's a preacher, something's missing in my life. It's Christ. 
I'm not saying you're not saved. I don't know whether I, you're saved or not. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you were sincere in doing that, then you're saved. But you say, preacher, I know that I'm saved. I've been born again. I've been saved for a decade or 20 years or 30 years. I know that I'm saved. You say, preacher, what do I need? What you need is Christ. Uh, you say, preacher, do I need to be resaved? No, he, he does things right the first time. But what you need is to consecrate your life to Christ. What you need is more of him in your life. What you need is more of his word, more of his presence, more of his influence, more of his will, more of his joy, more of his strength. And I'll tell you this, if you're not satisfied, it's not because he's not enough. Because he fully satisfies. It ought to smite our narcissistic soul to think that sometimes we dare look at God and say, Lord, I'm unhappy. Is he not enough? Is he not enough? He fully satisfies. Say, preacher, you just don't understand. Oh, no, trust me. I've been there as much as you've been there. But I found this, that when I got over my pity party and I came to the Lord and said, Now, Lord, I need some help. I found that he was always enough. And that thing that I thought I so desperately needed was just a, a false, just a, a toy, just a cheap imitation of what he could give me if I could give my heart to him. I see that they were fully satisfied. But then the Bible says this. They didn't stop after they ate. And, uh, I, you know, I don't guess I would have either. I'd probably done what they did too. I mean, it's a spoils battle. God understands that. Bible says they carried thin silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. And then just, just to be on the safe side, they came again and entered into another tent and carried thins also and went and hid it. It's interesting. Here these men go and they, you, you think about how much the Lord changed their life. Here they are lepers that are dying. They're dying of an inward disease. They're dying of an outward uh, uh, depravity. They're dying of a conflict around them. I mean, they, they everywhere around them, they are hopeless. They are doomed. They, they have no help. And they go from that to now running through these tents, giggling like a teenager, gathering up silver and gold and carrying it and hiding it and burying it. Wonder what they planned on for that. I'll tell you this, and I don't, you might have to read this in Hebrew, alright? You're gonna have to look in Hebrew. I'll tell you what they did, Charlie. They looked at him and said, I'll tell you this, I may be a leper, but I'm gonna be the richest leper around. I may be a leper, but I ain't gonna be a beggar anymore. And what were they doing? They were taking all of that and laying it up. You know why? So that they never, ever would have to beg again. They knew that food wasn't going to last very long. But hey, if they had a little walking money, they could buy them some McDonald's. And I'd say it this way. What they found fully satisfied them. But number two, what they found forever sustained them. It was enough for the rest of their days. These men, what a glorious thing that God did. They went from being the most loathed, the most despised, the most poor, the most beggarly, the most hopeless men in a world, in a city of hopeless people to now being the richest men walking around. You know, that's what God did when He saved you and me. He took the most loathsome, the most wicked, the most unclean, the most hopeless, the most helpless in a world that's full of hopeless and helpless people. And made us a child of the king and filled the coffers of our soul and gave us all we could ever ask for.
I'm glad when he saves, he saves eternally. Wouldn't do me a lot of good if he just saved occasionally. I'm glad he saves eternally. And the Lord Jesus made this abundantly clear in John chapter 4. People say sometimes, you know, the, the church of Christ will say, well, there ain't no Bible proof for eternal security. Uh, well, if you don't read the Bible, there isn't. But if you read the Bible, it's everywhere. And here's just one example. I could give you a hundred more. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 4, speaking to the woman at the well, says this. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He's talking about that natural water. That's why I don't even fool with water. I get all the water I need in my sweet tea. Me and my wife argue about this all the time. She'll say, you need to drink some water. I'll say, I am, with some tea and sugar in it. She'll say, that ain't water. I'll say, well, how do you make tea? She'll say, well, first you boil some water. Ah, that's right. He says, whosoever drinks this water shall thirst again. But now I like what he says here. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Why is he never going to thirst? Well, he says, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Hey, he, I came to him thirsty. And he didn't just give me a drink, but he dug me a well. He didn't just give me a little bit. But he said, I'll through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit take up residence in your life and you'll draw with joy water out of the wells of salvation. And I found this. He don't just fully satisfy. He forever sustains. I see the bounty that they found. And then notice finally, and I'm done today, verse 9. Then they said one to another, we do not well. Now in that they exhibited more self-awareness than 99.999% of Christians today. They said, we do not well. This day, they said, <coughs> is a day of good tidings. We hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. I see the urgency that they found. They said, hey, what we've got is too good to keep to ourselves. What we've got is too important to sit on top of and roost on it and pretend like it didn't happen. I've got to go tell. There's people that need to hear. There's people sitting in there starving to death in that city. And we're out here feasting. And all they have to do is get out of that city. You know, that's what the book of Hebrews says. If we're going, if we're going to come to Christ, we're going to have to suffer without the gate. All they got to do is leave that city and come out here and they'll find the table is spread. And so notice three things here. Notice, number one, the condemnation that they feared. They said, this is a problem. God has delivered us this day. And he's not going to look too kindly on it. If we let his people in there, if we let the king's household starve to death, while we sit out here and gorge ourselves on the spoils of battle. You know, it reminds me of what the book of Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 33, 8. The prophet was warned by the Lord, said, When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Now, God's not saying that he's going to let this wicked man into heaven and make you go to hell on his behalf. What he's saying, he says he's going to die in his iniquity. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be judged. But he said, don't think for one moment that it'll go unnoticed. That you held the truth of God in unrighteousness. That you refused to go and tell those and warn them that you were commissioned to go tell.
It's interesting the way these lepers say it. They're in the middle of the night here. The Bible says on two different occasions in our text, it was the twilight time. And they said this, here we are in the dark of night, but one of these days, the sun's coming up. And in the morning light, it'll be apparent for everyone to see that this camp is empty. We better not wait till the morning comes, and then it'll be too late to tell anybody. We better go even now while it's night time and tell them that the camp is empty. You know, you and I are living in the darkness of this world. But there's coming a day that the sun of righteousness is going to shine across this globe. But when that day comes, it's going to be too late to tell folks. And one of these days, when we stand in the light of His glory, we're going to be called into account for the life that we have lived. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things that are done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. Sooner or later, we're going to have to answer for why we kept quiet. We're going to have to give an account for why we watched men, women, and children die and go to hell while we sat and feasted ourselves at the table of His grace without ever caring enough for those Christ died for to turn around and say, hey, there's a spot for you. Come and scoot up a chair. I see the condemnation that they feared. Thankfully, they did not do that. They instead went, verse 10, they came and called unto the porter of the city. And they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. I see the salvation that they shared. What they told the city literally saved untold hundreds of thousands of lives that day. Men that were perishing for hunger when there was a feast right outside the gate. And that's exactly the condition that we find ourselves today in, in this dispensation of grace. You know, one of the things I love, we're doing this track a day challenge. By the way, let me just say this. And you don't do it for me, do it for Christ. But I'm just going to tell you, bless my heart to see those last five stacks be gone. We've never been that close to getting them all out. What a blessing that would be. You know, one of the reasons that we do, one of the things I love about the, there's no wrong person to give a gospel tract to. to. But preacher, what if they're already saved? They'll hug your neck. They might get under conviction that you gave them one and they didn't give you one. Or it'll be somebody lost and undone. And you know, here they sit, dying in their sins. And, and you know, that's sad. But you know the real tragedy of it is they don't have to. They don't have to. I mean, you understand that all of God's workings and dealings with humanity are centered around this fundamental truth that God has made salvation available. That if men will come to Him, He will in no wise cast them out. So they come and... I like what they said. I like this. It encourages me as a soul winner. They don't show up and say, now listen, let's go sit down with the king and I want to recount and record to you all the various sundries and things that happened on this here night. I want to tell you how that the Lord made a sound of horses and a sound of chariots. By the way, these men may have not even known how God did it. They just knew God did do it. And tell them, and now this happened and this happened and this happened. You check me out and you check me up and here's the references. They didn't do that. I guess that's good if they could have. But they just showed up and say, Hey, camp's empty, food, and turned around and ran off. 
<coughs> we really think a lot of ourselves sometimes. We think it is our brilliance, our eloquence, our ingenuity that brings the lost to Christ. No, I'm sorry to disappoint you. <coughs> the truth is, you're just ringing the dinner bell to a starving man. You don't have to, and listen, you need to have a clear understanding of what the gospel is. You need to be able to tell people that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that they're sinners that can't save themselves, and that if they'll trust in him and commit themselves to him, call upon him in faith, he'll save them. <coughs> but you don't have to have an answer to every question. You don't have to be able to explain every single detail of everything that God's ever done. Preacher, what do I do? Well, you just tell them the devil's camp is done empty. God's done whooped him and ran him off. And salvation's available. And if you'll come to Jesus, he'll receive you. I see the salvation <coughs> that they shared, but then I see the transformation that they caused. Money's a funny thing, isn't it? Uh, it's not really worth anything. We're learning that painfully so now. We're learning that a promissory note from the government. I mean, I'm just saying the government does not have the greatest track record of uh, fealty to documents and, and to the truth and veracity of them. And <coughs> we're learning that money's just a funny concept. What really is money? It can change in a moment. It's funny, you know, somebody get up on TV, make a statement, and then all of a sudden the markets crash. Then somebody get up, make another statement, and all of a sudden the markets go back up. It's like it's all a big Ponzi scheme, and it's all money laundering, and there's not really anything to it anyway. But money's a funny thing. Information can change the value system of an entire world. And that's what we see happen in our text. Notice not only the condemnation they feared and the salvation they shared, but finally, notice the transformation they caused. I'm just going to read them. I'm going to lay them beside each other. Second Kings 6.25. There was great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five pieces of silver. Second Kings 7.16. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord I guess that put the donkey head salesman out of business <laughs> some old boy sitting there with a whole cart whole wagon load of donkey heads saying well that's it I got nothing else <laughs> you know what it tells me it tells me this when they brought this information it literally saved and transformed the lives of the people that were in that city it is as stark a difference as night and day. They went from hopeless to hopeful. They went from starving to saved. They went from rotting to death to rejoicing in the Lord. Everything changed. Why? Because these lepers brought this precious story of what God had done. You know, that's what happened in my life. And if you're saved, that's what happened in your life. Paul says it this way in the book of Colossians, that this is what God does for the believer, that he hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Has it changed you? If it has changed you, and I trust that it has, why would you not want it to change others?
Oh, preacher, I ain't no evangelist. Nobody's asking you to be one. Preacher, I ain't no theologian. I don't know where these lepers got their degree. Preacher, you don't understand. I, I, I don't have a way with people. I can sometimes be as offensive. Uh, you know, I can be offensive sometimes. As a leper? Don't answer that. These are literally people. I, I, I got to hurry up and close, but these are literally people that their job when they were coming close to people was to cry out, unclean, unclean. Their whole world was trying to push people away. And now God's given them a calling where their whole job is to run right up to folks and say, let me tell you what God has done out there on the field of battle. Preacher, it ain't in my nature. It ain't in none of our natures. We're not asking you to be natural. We're asking you to be supernatural. My pastor, you say you can become by grace what you are not by nature. And I'm glad the grace of God. Hey, you say, I ain't cut out for it. Yeah, you are. Whenever you got born again, you got cut out in the shape of his image. You say, preacher, you don't understand. It couldn't be me. It's unlikely to be me. People won't listen to me. Preacher, if I tried to tell people, they'd run away from me. That didn't stop the lepers. And people ran from them. And, you know, we find that because they were willing to take this truth and to share it in the lives of others, it changed generations. There were children who would grow up to be adults who would have their own children, who would then go on to have those people's grandchildren, who would tell the story about these four men that cared enough about somebody else to come in and say, the enemy's defeated. Generations were changed. All because these men said, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings. Why sit we here till we die? Let's go tell somebody that God has given victory. And I wonder if you'd be willing to do what they did in your life day by day. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If God has spoken to your heart about something, and if he has, you just, you mind him. You listen to him. I'm not going to ask you to do a bunch of things. I'm going to ask you to mind the Lord this morning. If he convicted you about something, you respond to him today. Meet him in this altar. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus and him alone. We ask it in his name.